This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man who gave his father an autographed picture of Secretariat. He is the captain. Newsflash for you, Joy Boy. It's good to be seen, and it's good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Today we are drinking Party at the Moon Tower by the hardworking folks over at Latitude 42 Brewing Company. This dankalicious double IPA is a party in a can featuring Citra, Mosaic, Seven Seas, and Columbus Hops that will make you want to party at the Moon Tower. Garage grade, four out of five bottle caps. All right, let's get this party started right, Captain. First, we have a cheers to our buddy Avery down in Springdale, Arkansas. And a big we like your jib to Brittany in Midland, Texas. Next, we have James S. and his supervisor, Allison, in Parts Unknown. Allison, you make sure to keep an eye on that boy. And a big shout out to Jessica in Gardner, Kansas. Next up, we have Alita and High Onger, United Kingdom. And last but certainly not least, we have Jennifer in Lewis Center, Ohio. Everyone we just mentioned went to TrueCrimeGarage.com and helped us out with this week's beer fund. And for that, we thank you. And for all of our old episodes, check us out on the Stitcher app and also check out our bonus show called Off the Record. And that is enough of the business. And this evening, we will be having a discussion with longtime friend of the show, Melissa Lee, from the Victimology Podcast. So everybody gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime.
Hello, Melissa. Thank you for joining us in the garage this week. How are you doing? Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So you and I have had so many off-the-record conversations about the Delphi case. And yes, it's gotten national attention, but it's something that is really always on my mind. And I know you're always thinking about it too. And both of us have a lot of thoughts and opinions, which is just a natural fit because there's not a ton of information out there. I thought it would be interesting if you could join me in the garage and we could talk about some of our thoughts and opinions regarding the unsolved double homicide case of Abigail Williams and Liberty German. Sounds good. The way this conversation came about was you reached out to me and you said, hey, Nick, are you listening to Down the Hill? Because I'm listening to it and it's fascinating. And you and I have had plenty of Delphi conversations before this. And I said to you, yeah, (laughs) yeah, I said to you, well, that's weird. I'm not listening to Down the Hill. I've been listening to Scene of the Crime, but they're talking Delphi as well. And so what that inspired for me And for you is you then went to listen to scene of the crime and I listened to down the hill. So now we're all caught up and here we are going to have a discussion of reading between the lines of what information has been released and discussing what we think could be going on here with the investigation itself and with what happened on that fateful day in February of 2017. So I don't know about you, but one of the like main issues I have with this case is there's not much information out there. So when we were given these little tidbits in both of the podcasts, I felt like it was just a huge finding. Yeah. And it's really been a lot of trying to read between the lines. And these two podcasts had more information than others have. True Crime Garage has covered Delphi at least six episodes and countless off the record episodes. But it was interesting to get the real nuts and bolts of the case from these two different podcasts. So let's just dive right in here with with some of the thoughts that we wanted to discuss. The first being the investigators they interviewed said that the video and the audio haunts him because of the reaction of one of the girls. And we could take that a million different ways, but I did want to get either what what opinions do you have of that or what questions does that raise for you? So one of my main thought processes with this was that the investigator, you know, when he was talking about it, he had said he had watched the video multiple times and it always bothers him the reaction of the one girl's face as she's watching what's happening to her friend. So in my brain, I was thinking, okay, we know this whole time it's been Libby's cell phone who was or who's been recording or who was recording at the time. And so my thought process was, okay, if he's saying he's watching the face of one of the girls while the other girl is, you know, something's quote unquote happening to her, she's watching, watching what's happening. Then I would believe that they are referring to Libby watching what's happening to Abby here. Because if it was Libby's cell phone, we know it was in Libby's possession at the time. I feel like that is the most plausible explanation is that it was Libby who was watching what's happening to Abby. Yeah. So we're going to have a a difference of opinion here just based off. And I can only go off of stuff that I've heard and seen and read. and, And you can only go off of what you've seen and read. 
I have a different different opinion on this because what I've I, and I'm trying to think of the investigator that you're talking about, but I do recall seeing a, an investigator interviewed and saying, "Yeah, the video, the audio haunts me." And I didn't think that it was as specific as because of seeing the one girl's face. I'm not questioning that that you didn't find that somewhere. I just I didn't have the same experience. What I was able to find was that three of the family members are saying that they were allowed to watch the video. And that was Becky, Mike, and Anna watched the video. And here's where you got to take it a step further. Did they see the entire video or were they only showed a portion of it? What law enforcement was willing to show them and their statements were that there was very little on the video that they saw that was of use to identifying the the suspect or even really knowing what was going on with the girls at at the time of of the video that what they're seeing what they did say that they saw or heard on the video was typical girl talk talking about the man on the bridge whispering between the two and at some point libby said something about a path ending. And this is where I take it a bit a step further, try to fill in the blanks and then wonder if the order of this is pretty concise as to what they witnessed on the video. Because you can almost see this playing out in your mind where we have typical girl talk. Maybe the video actually started before they witnessed the man on the bridge. Then all of a sudden, hey, there's somebody on the bridge. He's alone. Why is he walking this fast towards us? And then whispering between the girl, between the two, as the perpetrator gets closer and as their fear heightens. And then at some point, we have this situation of Libby says something about the path ending. And I think Anna's words were something to the effect of, well, where do we go now? The path is ending. This almost sounds to me like by this point, he's already got them. The bridge guy's already got them somewhat under his control that he's directing them around. And that's where I wonder if in fact there was some video at this point. And that's what your investigators talking about saying one of the girl's faces at this point, her reaction to what's going on. Because you also wonder like if, if the path does run out, now not only does he have control of us, but he's taking us off the path. Doesn't it seem like the situation's getting a little dire, getting worse? Like not only does he, is he threatening us and controlling our movements, but he's now taking us into the woods, into a place where we really don't want to go with this guy. Well, now I've also heard rumors about either the video going out or the audio going out at some point. I don't know. Have you heard those rumors at all? I've definitely seen the rumor of the video going out where there is additional audio that can be heard, but the, the phone that was capturing the video may have been concealed at some point. And that's really interesting because I feel like I'm a 50, 50 split to whether the perpetrator knew of the phone at all of the existence of the phone at all. Because one thing we do know is that the phone was found somewhere near the crime scene. We do not, they don't tell us exactly where it was found, but we do know that it was in fact found. 
So that leads me to believe one of two things occurred for the bridge guy. Either he never detected Libby's cell phone, never she was able to conceal it and he never came across it. Or two, he may have tried to destroy it, but was unsuccessful or thought he had successfully destroyed it, you know, smashed the Mm -hmm. phone and then left. But there was still, there was the technology was still inside the phone and able to show us this video and give us this audio. One thing I do question though, is if he did detect the phone, if he did find the phone, it's interesting to me the sophistication that goes into the thought of to not take it with him, especially if he may have thought that there was something incriminating on the phone. It, it shows that he has some general understanding of that type of technology, meaning had he taken her phone with him, they may have been able to track him in some form using her phone. I know that the Find My Phone app was not working on Libby's phone at the time. It does show some type of sophistication to me that he ch- he may have chose not to take the phone with him. Now, I had had a thought that, so from what I have heard as far as the crime scene, which I know we'll get into in a little bit, that it was not a, or not an organized crime scene. And the fact too, it makes me think uh, as well that her shoe was found, what, a couple feet away from where their bodies were, would eventually be discovered. I had always thought that the phone had fallen at some point and he didn't even necessarily know it was there or because I, I had had that thought too. Why not try to dispose of the phone? Why not throw it into the creek that they were near? You know, why not try to, to completely get rid of it if it did have this evidence of him committing these crimes on it? You know, that kind of goes along with the the theory that I'm now in belief of that. I actually think that at some point they did try to run from him that they tried to flee him. And so the information I found was that Libby, one of her shoes was on the bridge on the Monon high bridge side of the Creek and their bodies were found on the other side of the Creek. So I'm wondering now if as they're approaching this Creek area or as they're making their way down the Hill, if they tried to run toward the Creek and cross the Creek to get away from him, Libby losing her shoe in the process, or did the bridge guy then place it there or throw it there, discard of it there for, for whatever reason later. But then that's interesting what you just brought up. It could be just as simple as Libby dropped the phone to either abandon it to, to be able to run away faster or dropped it on accident or dropped it to conceal it. So he wouldn't know that she filmed him. I do think there's more on the video and audio than police are revealing, partially also because we didn't even know it was a video until last year. Like they didn't release yeah. that until 2019, April, literally a year ago. Yeah. So a couple of things that, that I believe, and again, this is just my opinion in regards to the video and the audio, I do think that there is more that was recorded. There was more that was recorded. I think that probably what we have here is whatever else they have in addition to what they've released is of no benefit to the public, to the victims or to the investigation. Meaning I don't think that we have much more of the offender of the bridge guy. I think there's no reason for me to believe that we are not seeing the best 
image that they have of bridge guy? What would be the benefit to their investigation to withhold a better image of him from the public when you've clearly told us time and time again for three years that you need the public's assistance? So that just doesn't ring true to me that there would be additional better images of the bridge guy. I think that there's probably some additional images of the bridge guy, but the one that we're seeing is the best one that they are able to provide to us. And then in regards to the audio, I think that there's definitely more audio. One thing that Anna did say was, you know, gave us a brief description of the audio she could make out. Again, we don't know that that law enforcement showed the family every everything that they had. We just don't know that. The family seems to think that they saw everything that law enforcement mm-hmm. had, but we just don't know. In regards to the audio, the statements I saw from from the family was that there was much more audio than there was video. So that goes back to the idea that the phone was concealed or dropped at some point and from 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 filming more video. But then on top of that, if you have additional audio, I think that what you probably have is a lot of talk between the two victims, which doesn't help the the public identify the bridge guy. So there's no need to release any of that. And then on top of that, if you do have additional audio from the bridge guy, it may be to a point where he is initiating certain threats that may be even detailed threats. And we know that they've withheld a bunch of information, the cause of death they've withheld. If, if they were sexually assaulted, how he gained control of them, there could be details inside those threats that would be, would be bad for the investigation because they're withholding that other information. Right. And just to bounce off of that. um, So the audio that the police did eventually release where it says guys down the hill. I've actually seen quite a few people like try to analyze that audio. And I think I actually sent you a copy of it as well that someone tried to clear it up. So it's very apparent while looking at this from a sound point of view, like looking at it underneath audio editing equipment, you can see a definite cut in the two sections. My guess is there's more of the offender in the audio. And I agree as well that it's probably something not that should not be shared with the public, at least right now, as far as what happened with the crime, whether or not he described what he did to the girls or went into great detail or you know something. Um, but I do think, I, I just, my gut's telling me there's more on the audio and video than what they're, they're sharing ultimately. So some information real quick that I have here in my notes. Sorry, I'm going through my notes as we go through this. Libby's cell phone was they did a factory reset 10 days before the murder. This was because the phone was all boogered up with a whole bunch of unnecessary data and probably games and things like that. That's why they were not able to use the find my phone app because a lot of the apps that were on her phone had not been loaded back onto the phone after this factory reset, because that's what her grandmother Becky would have used to, track her mm-hmm. down. Right. So then take that a step further. What we have here is the phone was recovered at the scene. We don't know where exactly, but it's stated as found close to the scene. 
Law enforcement has confirmed that they have more audio and video, and all of the audio they have is from the video that Libby filmed, meaning there, there's there's not a separate recording that's audio only. And their statement here from my notes, Libby filmed using the standard video recording camera feature on her iPhone. Now, I have a question. That picture of Abby on the bridge, that was taken that day, right? Yes. Yeah. So that's definitely Snapchat. So Correct. uh, Yeah. I mean, well, and if that's the case, then that... It was record. I mean, and obviously, you know, anyone who has a phone, we know we can just press the button and it records the whole time. That's interesting. So it was Tobe Lesenby who stated publicly that the crime is not on the recording. And I believe that was his exact words. The crime is not on the recording. Again, I have to believe that means the the double Mm -hmm. homicide itself. Mm -hmm. With the Snapchat thing, first of all, you're talking to the wrong guy. I've never used Snapchat. I don't, I don't know. I don't even, I barely even know what it is, to be honest with you. What I have here is interesting because the, we do know what time that that Snapchat went out. So the timing of that is 2.07 PM that the Snapchat goes out. The interesting thing there is there's no bridge guy behind Abby at that time. We know based off of sunlight and shadows and other information that the bridge guy is approaching them between 2.20 and 2.30 p.m. So shortly after that Snapchat, minutes after that Snapchat, we now have bridge guy in pursuit of the two girls. And what's fascinating and terrifying to me, too, is I believe that either if they're already recording the video or if they were inspired to then record the video, there's somebody else on the bridge, which seems haunting on its own. He's by himself. Again, haunting. Why is he walking so fast? Why is he approaching us so fast? And the terrifying thing for these two girls, again, ages 14 and 13 years old, they can clearly see a grown man approaching them very quickly on this rickety old bridge. You're now left with two options. You're either going to be, if you let him keep approaching you, you're either going to be in close quarters with this individual that you're already kind of put off of, or your other option is to have to cross him on that bridge. Just that alone, you're kind of, you're really boxed into a corner if you're Libby and Abby here. And that that thought there just terrifies me. And I think that that, that thought alone explains the inspiration for for the for filming him, be it if you were already filming something else or if you were inspired to do so because of the sight of him. Now, what we also can piece together is that very likely Libby, who's recording, is already off of the bridge. She's on the what I refer to as the dead end side of the bridge. She's already off of the bridge, and you can see that she, at one point, is filming Abby, who's making her way toward the dead end side. And then at some point, they become aware of the bridge guy. And then what happens after that, we don't know. We can piece together, too, though. At some point, he's able to take control of the girls and attempt. I believe he was successful moving them, directing them where he wanted them to go for 
for a portion of time that he was successful with that. I think at some point it, it, it may have got away from him. So something I'm thinking, I don't remember off the top of my head, which podcast it was that mentioned this, but they had made a comment that it was common for Abby to take pictures of random people out in the public, um, you know, secretively, of course, and like send it to people and like, oh, that's your boyfriend. Joking. Right. Which is a total teenage girl thing to do, speaking as once being a teenage girl. So it almost makes me wonder if that's what the ultimate like cause of the videoing was. And we know that the video is the Snapchat thing is from that day one, because it was posted Mm -hmm. that day. But on top of that, Abby, that was her first time crossing the bridge to my knowledge from everything I've heard that that was the first time she crossed the bridge. So it's almost like we have, we have her, her best friend memorializing that event with that Snapchat post. And then we have, okay, whole different reason, whole different action now we got bridge guy. We got video of bridge guy, which we know was recorded using the standard video recording camera feature on her iPhone. The other interesting thing too, we talked about the timing of everything that the bridge guy was on the bridge between two twenty and two thirty, roughly the spot where he is recorded is stated by, and I can't recall, I'm going off a of memory here, if he's the former prosecutor or current prosecutor, I'm guessing he's the former, Robert Ives. He says the image of the bridge guy that we have seen publicly was recorded at a great distance. And based off of the markings on the bridge, we're able to determine that the suspect at that point is approximately 60 feet from the end of the bridge and that bridge from what I've seen the locals say takes about six minutes to cross. Hmm. This goes back to a theory that, that I threw out there when we covered it on true crime garage. And I'm still of this theory that he was approaching them and he was approaching them rather quickly that he was moving across that bridge at a faster than normal rate and that might have been something that tipped them off. Why would he go that fast? That It almost feels like to me that the two knew or were suspicious of his movements, believing at some point he's either going to approach us or he might be after us. If there is something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals, BetterHelp Online Counseling can help. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who specialize in issues such as depression, anxiety, relationships, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, self-esteem, and more. Connect with a professional counselor in a safe and private online environment and get help at your own time and at your own pace. Anything you share is completely confidential. It's so convenient you can schedule a secure video or phone session as well as chat and text with your therapist. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Our listeners even get 10% off your first month with discount code GARAGE. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com garage, then simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com garage. 
mentioning Robert Ives, he is the one that said that several things about the crime scene were odd. And I found this interesting, and I do know a little bit of the production between the two podcasts. Scene of the crime was, was the production was completed on that before down the hill was completed. They both came out roughly about the same Mm -hmm. time. But what I found interesting was the contrast between the two within that of Robert Ives' statements, where on scene of the crime, he says there were several things about the crime scene that were odd. And it's almost like he, it's almost like loose lips sink ships. Once the toothpaste is out of the tube, you can't put it back in, but he tries to walk it back a little bit. Like, you know, there, there are, there are always odd things about a murder scene. It felt a little telling, like, no, maybe the, maybe this crime scene has things about it that are more strange than the typical crime scene. And then later on down the hill, he's now referring to these rather than odd things as signatures. And it's almost like he was uh, schooled to, to start using the word signature or if it, maybe it was a, a theatrics thing. I don't know, but I cannot shake either of those statements. I cannot get them out of my head. I cannot quit circling round and round about what they could mean And you and I touched upon that a little bit in our conversations. I don't know. Take me into your thoughts when you hear somebody that close to the case say a statement like that. I can totally agree with that. The odd crime scene comment has stuck with me this entire time since it was said. Um, Because, you know, obviously your mind starts racing like, okay, what in the heck could that mean? And, you know, no, no crime scene is a good crime scene, you know, like it's to say that it's odd really makes me think that so and also too um the first responders they had made a comment too in the podcast i think it was down the hill that they all had to decompress that evening so when i hear it was an odd crime scene they had to decompress that evening which of course you know the murder of two children that is not an easy thing to deal with as a first responder or investigator. That is not a good thing. That never sits well. But for to make a point to say that almost all of the people involved, all of the first responders involved, had to decompress that evening because that was the like like severeness of the crime scene. The trauma. E- exactly. Exactly. Which I mean, you know, we hear that first responders need to decompress when they see some really messed up things which rightfully so. Then the mentioning of the signatures. So the second I heard that, I was like, okay, that's really interesting. To hear that there are signatures involved in the case and to know about all the different rumors that are circulating around, it immediately made me think that there might be some value to some of those rumors. You know, I mean, there were people there at the crime scene. The person who found Hmm. them was a family member of Libby's, I believe. For them to say their signatures, I know you and I have kind of discussed this, um, what the difference between a signature and an MO is, right? Mm-hmm. So it it's it just like, hmm. I mean, should we go into the rumors? Or Well, yeah, I think, think we should because part of this that I'm hoping to achieve with our discussion here today is 
some of the old rumors that were circling around, they've made their way back again. And I think it's because of the two podcasts, which is strange to me because they were so complete and concise about the information that they were putting out. But again, it's always going to go back to the law enforcement has not released much information. So then that, that only inspires the rumor mill. But I think that some of the, some of the rumors are one, they're just negative toward the victims, negative toward the families, and they hold no truth at all. So not only am I hoping that our discussion has some, some interesting opinions and some interesting takes and theories on what might have actually happened, but also to, to squash some of those rumors that are showing their ugly face again. So I think the other interesting thing here to keep in mind and correct me if I'm wrong, Melissa, but Robert Ives was pressed. They're like, what do you mean by signatures? Can you tell us what they were? And he's, of course, he's like, no, I cannot tell you what they were. I believe he was pressed to say, well, how many signatures or how many odd things or off things would you say that you saw at this crime scene? And I believe his exact words were two or three. I feel like three feels like more familiar to me to the point where I I wonder if, if he did say three, but two or three is what I've been kind of working off of based off of his statements, if I'm remembering. And I think too, he says at least two or three. At least two or three. And that at least stuck with me. I mean, I feel like that leaves room now for like tons of speculation because it's like, what else was at that crime scene? So um, I know some of the like most popular theories are, um, and what we I can also mention that Facebook message that I had found. So there's a screenshot that's been circulating around by the person who actually found the girls um, who saw the shoe first, looked up, ended up finding them. So there's a Facebook messenger picture going around stating that Libby was nearly decapitated and that it was obviously personal towards her, which is an interesting you know, thing to say, especially if they did not know the person. Well, and again, this is not a, the person that's giving that opinion that they believe it to be personal is not an expert. No. Can we agree on no. that? Yeah. And, and should we take it a step further and question the, the validity of that screenshot? Oh, I, I would or- say Yes. Well, not only that, but I think because that screenshot has circulated around, this person is now a favorite suspect of many online sleuthers, Mm. which is kind of interesting. But um, just to roll off of that, though, I've heard many rumors, and I'm not sure if you've heard the same rumors, that Libby had to wear a scarf at the funeral. Yeah, that's been a pretty common one to go around. And actually, I've seen it said that both we're wearing scarves I've seen that at, as the, well. at their yeah. funerals. I, I mean, I don't know if that's true. Obviously I was, was not there and, um, I don't know if that's true, but I will tell you this. I am of the belief and I'm basing this off of things that I've seen and heard. And a lot of it, mind you is second and third hand, but I'm hearing this from and seeing this from some trusting from some trusting persons and sources and this is not insider information. This is my opinion. Mm-hmm. I believe that the that it was a bladed weapon that was used in the in the attack of of the girls. I think that it was 
a gun that was used to control them and to move them. But because of how loud a gun is, when it came time to, you know, it, that it was a bladed weapon that was used for that portion of the of the crime. Now, that's interesting. And I don't know that I want to take any further than yeah. that um, as far as what the injuries could be. And then you take it a step further and you say, well, and you bring up a, a really good thought. It's it's this layperson's opinion that it was personal based upon the injuries they saw or may have seen that it was personal against you said Libby. Yes. Yeah. Here's where I take that a step further. And, and, and you said, well, that's interesting, especially if they didn't know them, it's almost implying that the, the victim and the offender knew one another, but we've seen plenty of crimes. We've seen plenty of murders where it, it appears to be personal in nature, but they didn't know each other. And that can happen for a multitude of reasons. One, did Libby present certain problems to the offender and really piss the guy off? Or did he, or did she really fight him fight back in a, in a good, strong way? And it became personal for him. The other thing too, that people often point out is overkill. Well, the, the offender must've known the victim because of the overkill that we see at the scene or on the victim or the overkill that's um, presumed to be at the scene since we don't know exactly how right. they died. And, yeah. you know, looking at other cases, not this case, but there were plenty of Ted Bundy's victims that had the appearance of overkill because that's how he preferred to kill the victim. That's how he naturally attacked these victims. And he didn't know any of them. Where there's overkill does not necessarily have to mean that the offender knows the victim or has a, a specific hate for that victim that they want to destroy, because that's what you see with overkill. You often say um, to, to kill somebody is to take them away to, to end their lives. But the overkill is the emotion is that they want to destroy that person. You don't necessarily have to know them to have that hate. The victim could be a surrogate, which is could seen represent a lot something of times. else. It's it's seen a lot. It could, and it's with some of these killers, serial killers in particular. Some of them, it's just a a, a general hatred for women in general, and and that all that means is that for overkill to be present is that the victim is a woman. I don't know. I've not heard rumors of of overkill here with Delphi, but. I have heard and seen the rumors of it possibly being personal with, in regards to Libby. I think that that means something that, that doesn't necessarily mean that they were, that they, the perpetrator knew either one of the victims. I think this was a stranger abduction and attack. And I think that's part of the reason why the investigation has been so difficult. And I think that it became, it may have become personal for the killer. So this is um, something I've gone back and forth on a lot. Let me ask your opinion. Do you think that the girls were killed at the scene? We have a vague statement from law enforcement that would lead us or lead me to believe that. Their statement is they were killed where they were found. And people have taken that. You can take that a million different ways. Were they taken off someplace else and then returned to the general area and killed there? 
I don't think any of that went down. I think that this, the general statement of they were killed where they were found and they would have evidence to prove that to them, to law enforcement, it wouldn't be very hard for them to figure that out. But I think that you have to take into account a few different things. All of these crimes, and anytime you have a murder, especially with a double homicide, you have you have multiple crimes that happened during the commission from the start to finish of this. And we know that they were abducted at some point because they were moved, they were under his control and moved somewhere that they would not want to be. So that is the definition of being abducted. And then they are killed. What we have here to me is there's not a lot of time that goes by from the time that he bridge guy first comes on the scene to the girls to the time when they're probably, when it's probably all over with, and he's in the process of fleeing the area. We have law enforcement statements that say, and again, there's, they're speculating as well, because until we catch the guy, we just don't know, but they're saying that on their press releases with the description of the bridge guy and images of the bridge guy, They state that it's believed he left the area by 5 p.m., but could have still been there in the general area when the family started searching for the girls. The other difficult thing here, which is weird about the phone, with going back to Libby's phone, is we have Derek, who was there to pick them up. He calls Libby's phone at 3.11 that afternoon because he can't find the girls. Now, a couple tricky things here. She doesn't pick up the phone. You could take that one of two ways. It, whatever happened already happened or by 311 or she's under the control of bridge guy or has dropped the phone by that time. There's also some interesting speculation that we know to be true is with the with the camera feature that she was using to record the video. If you have an incoming call on that iPhone that she had, it would it would stop the recording. Mm-hmm. Is that what stopped the recording? Eventually the phone goes dead. Eventually the, you know, it's going to, to voicemail at some point. Then you take it a step further. If they were afraid enough to record video, why not just call 911? Right. You know, like right. you got to think that may have been an option. I, I'm sure that there's somewhere places that your phone just won't work, but why was that option not used? Or And here's a little safety tip for anybody out there. If you're approached by somebody that 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 they know they're aware that you saw them already and they're trying to abduct you, at the very least lie to them and tell them you've already called 911. Even if you feel like you can't in that very moment, tell them that you've already called. Yeah. Can't hurt by that no. point. No, I mean, shoot. Yeah, and it's just making me think like at what point were they under his control? At what point did they feel unsafe? What was it during the video? Was it after the video? Did it? And I think that's a really interesting point too. That if I had to guess, that's most likely how the video stopped was probably the call coming in from her father. And that's just my opinion, obviously. But yeah, no, it just makes me wonder at what point they knew they were in trouble and why they didn't feel comfortable. I mean, unless he had had a weapon on them at that point. Yeah. Which is, I I think, I mean, and you got to think too, it's very difficult to handle two victims at one time. Even if you're a man, like in two small, smaller teenage girls. Um, And I want to say too, they don't think that the murderer is a very tall, large person. They think 
he's on the shorter side. And what did they say? I thought um, I had heard like five nine to five eleven, but I could be wrong. Don't quote me on that. I'm gonna pull it up. I I have the FBI seeking information flyer here somewhere. Five six to five ten. Yeah, I mean that's a short guy. And they put him at 180 to 200 pounds, which is interesting because that's from the the newest information. Because the old information had him about 20 pounds heavier, but the same height. Yeah. I mean, how how could somebody of that stature, and I want to say Libby was taller for her age, I, I believe. She would probably would have been close to that height. And I know Abby was a little bit smaller, but to be able to control two victims at one time, that is not an easy thing to do by any means. That's what you need the gun exactly. for. Exactly. Or some weapon. Um, right. And this is going back to the statement that Doug Carter stated, Kelsey said as well, they both are of the belief that the, the bridge guy, that wasn't his first time crossing that bridge. They both, they're saying anyone that has walked that bridge before would understand that. Mm-hmm. And I've never walked the bridge, so I don't know, right. but I'm going to believe them with that statement, which is interesting, meaning he's either from the area or currently lives in the general area or, or at least has been to that location a time or two before where I take it a step further is if you, the, a map uh, of the general area is so key for anybody that's trying to look into this case and do a little bit of their own web sleuthing, a little bit of their own armchair detective work here. Because if you look at the way that that whole situation is laid out, if he's familiar with the area, if he, this is where you got to put yourself in the mind of the killer of the perpetrator. He chose that area. He didn't just end up there by accident that day. He chose that area. And if we're, if we're to believe that he used a gun to control them, if we, if he brought weapons with him to the scene, there's every indication that he went there and he's using this as some type of hunting ground. Now he is using that bridge as a strategy. He knows that once somebody gets more than halfway across that bridge, that either he can go to the other side of the bridge and pin them down, or they at the very least have to pass him on that bridge as they're coming back, trying to get to, to the opposite side. I think he was looking for a certain type of victim. And I think he was looking for them to put themselves in a state of vulnerability and the bridge is what caused them to be vulnerable. If he's up on a bridge with them, right? A bridge is not stable. Like, and if you look at pictures of this bridge, it is an old bridge. Um, yeah. So, I mean, you got to think, I mean, if all it would take is one of them to push him off. And it's like, even if you have a weapon on them, it's still a very risky area to try to take control of two teenage girls. In part, I think not only is he chasing after them, but I think that's why I believe him to be moving so quickly across the bridge. And there's a lot of other people that share that opinion Mm -hmm. is that he wants to catch them at that state of being vulnerable. And that, that area for him is getting them on the dead end side of the bridge. And I think that, I think that as fast as they saw him moving is what inspired the, the fear that, that sent up the red flags about there's something not right with this guy. Let's go back to our, our 
takes on the, the crime scene itself and there being at least two or three signatures or at least two or three things that were off or odd about the scene, according to Robert Ives, take that for what it is, but, but look at the surface of what we do know and see if any of the things that we already know could apply to that statement. One thing that we do know is multiple victims at one time is a rare, it's a rare thing. So is Robert Ives lumping in the fact that we know that there are two victims as being a signature or something that was off or odd? And now are we down to just two things that we have to try to decipher what was was off or odd? And, you know, I've I've heard theories that a lot of people believe this was the first time this suspect or um, perpetrator had killed somebody. I, I, I'm not sure how people have drawn that conclusion, being we know so little about the crime itself. If it were his first time offending, to initially take on two victims at once, and it, like you had, how you had said, it's, it's rare, and it's not a common thing. And it makes me think that somebody who is just you know, starting to kill would not necessarily go straight away for two teenagers. Yeah. It seems like a more difficult situation. Mm -hmm. Anytime you increase your level of risk, you're increasing your level of risk of getting caught. And these guys that fantasize about violence, that fantasize about abduction or killing, they want to be successful in what it is that they set out to do. So they do not want to increase the risk of getting caught, number one, but they also don't want to increase the risk of not being successful in living out their fantasy, their violent fantasy. The thing that gets difficult there is you have to, because we don't know who Bridge Guy is, we do not know what his fantasy was, what his intention was, what his plan was. Is there a chance that he was unaware until it was too late that he was approaching two people instead of just one? I think that's on the slimmer side of of possibilities. I think it's very likely that he knew he was approaching two because I keep going back to that. He's looking for not only a certain type of victim, but a victim that puts themselves in a, in a certain spot in that, that state of being vulnerable. I don't think that two victims was a signature, but I think there's a purpose for it. I think there's a reason behind it, why he chose two rather than one. I, or maybe the number's not so much important, but the people that he saw, the targets that he saw, I think there's reasoning behind that. Like maybe he set his eyes on one of the girls and the other one was collateral damage. That's always a thought process. That's too. a strong possibility. Yeah. The other strong possibility is were these the first two targets that he saw that didn't contain a male or was this the smallest group of people that he saw? I have some belief and I don't know for certain, but there are some statements and some witness reports, eyewitness reports who people that were in the area around this time of day where it seems to me like he may have had the opportunity to go after a single female, uh, a woman or a, or a younger lady by themselves. Now we don't know that we can't say for certain that he actually saw that target and decided to pass on it. 
but there seems to be enough evidence out there to me that that is a possibility that he, that he didn't choose that target for some reason. So then that makes me go back to, well, maybe it's, it's either this type of victim, the number of targets that was important enough for him to move in and act. Because one thing we do know is we don't have anybody coming forward saying, Oh, I was attacked or approached by some weird guy on this day around this time that didn't happen. So it almost appears like whoever he first set out to go after he, he did, he actually went after them. There's also zero. This is the one rumor that I would love to squash right here. There is zero evidence or zero reason to believe we cannot say for certain, but there's zero evidence to suggest that he went there targeting one or both of these girls specifically that he knew that they would be there and right. he went there for the purpose of going after one or both of them. So we, we can state that for several reasons. One, it was kind of a last minute trip that they went out there. And two, this isn't like a super secluded place. This is a place that a lot of people went to, to go hiking, especially uh, younger teenagers to hang out or hike the trails which makes me wonder if he if he knew the bridge and he knew that area well enough, he would have known the type of people that would have ventured to go there, especially during the middle of the day of a on a work week. And that also tells me maybe he was looking for that type of victim. Your show's called Victimology, so I don't have to explain to you there there is these perpetrators have a have a victim type often, and be it if they're a serial offender or not, a one off if you're going to try to profile the offender, it's as important to profile the victim and as important to profile the area. And just to bounce off of that. So one really huge issue with the information we know about this case is, and I think this is the reason why people are so upset that it has not been solved and that we don't know more is because we don't know what the motivation was behind the crime. They have never said if it was sexually motivated, if it was a rage killing, if it was a mission killing. They have never, ever clarified on their thought process on that. So we don't know if the ultimate goal was to have some sort of sexual fantasy fulfilled by the girl's death, deaths. So, and I know um, there's a lot of theories out there that a lot of weird post-mortem activity had happened. And I really don't hold a lot of... I don't think they hold much water. Let's put it that way. Well, again, that goes back to if that, that means he has to stay there longer and longer. Every, every weird postmortem activity that, that he's supposed to have done means he's there longer at the scene. And again, increasing his risk level of getting caught or being seen with the victims after the fact. And I, I do think that there was some stuff done. And I think that that is really where I want to mesh two statements together where we have Robert Ives, who says there were two or three signatures, at least two or three signatures. We also have Doug Carter, the spokesperson for, and I know that's not his proper title, but he's done. He's the upfront one. He is the, the mm-hmm. face and the voice of the press conferences coming out of the Indiana State Police. His statement when he was addressing the killer 
you know, and he got real personal with his statements. And I loved that. I loved the aggressiveness of his statements and addressing the killer directly in some of those press Mm -hmm. conferences. But one of his statements was he says something like, I can promise you they are not the way that you left them that day. Yeah. And that to me does tell me that there was, there was some postmortem activity that was, that were actions by the killer. And I almost feel like that is an attempt to slap the killer in the face because we see this with a lot of these guys. They have fantasies leading up to the to the commission of these types of crimes, and then they have fantasies after the fact. And some of them want to relive what took place when they committed some of these crimes. To me, that's almost like we know you did some things to these to the victims or to the area. Mm-hmm. It's not that way today. So get it out of your head. Quit fantasizing about it. What, what you think that you created no longer exists. To me, that points out one of the most common signatures that you will find out there is the posing of a victim. So I feel like, to me, meshing Carter's statement with Robert Ives' statement, I feel like posing one or both of the victims is probably, I would put that at a high probability. I would also think that there's probably some type of covering of the victims, be it with sticks, leaves, debris, or all of the above. Because one thing we do know is we have statements from the searchers that say, you know, we were in that very general area the night before and we didn't find them. We found them the next day during daylight. And then that has spread the bad rumor that the bodies were moved or the victims were, were taken away from the scene and then brought back at some point. I think people are overanalyzing that. I think it's just as simple as it was dark out right? and they didn't, and there may have been some camouflage involved, be it leaves, sticks, debris, covering of the bodies that prevented them from finding them that night under the cover of darkness The other thing we have to factor in there too, Melissa, is keep in mind at night, you believe you're looking for two girls who are alive and well, that's a much different thing. And I I still think they, the searchers believe that they were looking for two girls that were alive and well the next day. But now that the fear level has increased for the searchers because the time that has expired, but that night you're not, you're looking in a different way. You're out in the dark. You're calling the girls' names, hoping to hear them respond to your voice. And when you don't get that, you kind of quickly move on in that situation. You're hoping to cover as much ground as possible. We just reviewed a case on True Crime Garage. It was the Evansdale murders where the two victims were found in a remote location. And it was such a remote, dense area that the the officer said, had these hunters just been five feet or so in a different direction, they would have never have seen the bodies. So I I don't think that them not finding them that night means anything other than they didn't find them that night. They were probably there the whole time, but then it also takes you a step further to go, okay, well, what was the signature? Were they posed? Were they covered? Were they both? Was it both? One of the other theories I had heard, and I really don't think there's, 
much to it, um, is that the girls were wearing each other's clothes. The reason I don't think that's the case, because the person who actually found the bodies, um, I, I believe the way it happened is he saw the shoe on the ground, looked at the shoe, began to look up, and ended up seeing Libby in her tie-dye shirt. I don't think that they were necessarily dressed in each other's clothing. I thought that was kind of an iffy one. The posing, though, I totally could see some some form of that. And also, too, I'd also heard a rumor that um, either both of them were nude or one. But um, the wearing each other's clothing, I really don't think that's the case. The rumor I heard was that one of them was completely clothed or found in all the clothing that they were last wearing. And that one of them might have been somewhat undressed, but not completely nude. And again, that's just the rumor I heard. I think this whole thing with them being in each other's clothing is probably a rumor that just started at the very local level and grew legs for some Mm -hmm. reason. It doesn't seem like a likely scenario because you're going to have to, if you're the perpetrator, you're going to have to have them carry out that act for you, or you're going to have to strip them and redress them. It's again, it's like a whole lot of extra unnecessary things going on. And usually there is a very, usually there's a very simple explanation to what happened and why the issue being for us on the outside, trying to look in one, we don't have much information to work off of, but two, we also don't know, as you pointed out, the MO or the intentions of the perpetrator. It's hard to profile him and profile his actions and what he did or may have done that day because we don't know what what the intent was. I, I keep seeing a scene where his intentions were to do something different and it went sideways at some point. And then he, he attacked and killed the girls either out of necessity or out of anger. And I know it seems like a very simple explanation, but I, to me, that there seems to be some information out there that might point to that, that the, the shoe on the other side of the water. And then if you're, we know he's directing them. we, we know that 100% because we have the one line of down the hill. He's telling them, go down the hill. He's not saying, look, there's a deer. Where is it? Down that, that hill. No, he's directing them to go where he wants them to go. He's moving these people along. And why is he moving them? Where is he taking them? What is his intention with that? And then take, I take it a step further. Why? If, if they were killed where they were found, I, I have to question that he didn't direct them to that area. Why would he take them? Why would he choose to take them across the water when he didn't have to? Yeah. And you know, he could have taken them on dry land elsewhere. Yeah. The water seems like an added, an added risk level one two, and just kind of a dumb move. If, if he were smart enough and, and look, I'm giving him a lot of credit when I say some of these things and, and I, and I know that I'm just speculating on a lot, but if he was smart enough to choose a victim because they put themselves on the dead end side of the bridge, that's a tactical move. Why would he then do something as stupid as to lead them across the water when there's so much other dry land 
right in the immediate area that you could have just directed them. That's where I almost wonder, did they, did they decide to make a run for it at some point or did he lose control of the situation and they fled? Yeah, that's, that is one of the things that I often question. So the thing that always comes to my mind is the shoe that was left, right? Did that fall off while she was fleeing and running or did that come off because the perp was dragging her? Or she's, or she's trying to run full speed across, across the water. I mean, we've all done that and and your shoes immediately become soaked and super heavy and you can, you can easily slip out of one of the shoes in regards to the clothing thing. We do have statements from law enforcement that there was some clothing that was found under or near the bridge. So this would be kind of downstream from where the bodies were found. The issue being is we don't have confirmation that it belonged to the victims or that it has anything to do with the crime at all. And then you have to wonder if it did belong to the victims, did the killer place them there for whatever reason or to like mislead them? Yeah. My question is, depending on the type of crime committed, I mean, if a knife were involved, right, there would be blood. Mm -hmm. This person would most likely have blood all over themselves and would draw attention to themselves trying to leave the area. Yes. So, I mean, unless those clothes underneath belong to the killer, like he had stashed something somewhere or, you know, he knew he was going to commit a crime that day and tried to plan to the best of his ability, or he left some of his items behind that were covered in blood. That's interesting too, because one of the statements is that there was so much evidence left at the scene. So you have to wonder, do they believe, or do they know that he left some of his belongings there? And he does appear to be overdressed when he's on the bridge. And one thing that I've come across many times with people that do like that, that try to sneak into a home and steal things or break into a home and steal things that they will often, if they're, if they're people that are experienced at doing this, they will often wear multiple shirts and maybe even multiple head coverings or at least one. Because they know that if they, if anybody sees them, if they if somebody w- spots them either in the house or fleeing the scene, oh, we got a, we got a male black shirt, jeans. Well, if he sheds, if in the, in the process of fleeing the area, if he sheds his black shirt, now he's wearing, instead of a black sweatshirt, he's wearing a white t-shirt. You, you might, you might overlook him when you see him again. Mm-hmm. And so you have to wonder, is he wearing extra clothing for, to protect his person or because he plans on leaving some of it at the scene if it does in fact get bloody? So when you said so much evidence at the scene, um, it made me think. So a lot of times with criminals, you know, they're obviously categorized as organized or disorganized. When they leave evidence at a scene, that is indicative of a disorganized criminal. but. If he were to have planned to leave evidence at the scene, it completely switches the MO on its head to where Mm -hmm. the perp is now an organized criminal, which is really kind of interesting. And, you know, it's like if we knew more, we could probably figure it out. But unfortunately, or at least share what the police know. With the way that I think this attack went down, I think we're dealing with and, and you can't have a mixed a mixed offender as well that shows signs of both organized and disorganized. But I feel to me like 
with the planning that I believe was in play here, I believe we're dealing with an organized individual. Now, did things get go sideways on him and his plan got thrown out the window completely and it just got out of control? That's a possibility. I also wonder, though, too, with the word, the vague word of evidence, that doesn't have to necessarily mean that it's evidence against the perpetrator. It may just be evidence that there are things at the crime scene that tell them more exactly what happened and how things went down. And it doesn't really point to who committed it. It's just they can connect the dots and know kind of the general timeline and what took place when. But then on top of that, you also have to wonder this being out in the open in a public place, does some of that evidence, quote unquote evidence, some of the stuff that you're collecting at the scene, is it just just debris, just things that have been left by other people at other times and it has nothing to do with the case at all? You and I talked a lot about Amy. I was just going to say that. Yep. Yep. Yeah. They found her off the side of the road. They collected every piece of debris that they could find up and down that stretch of road. And we have to believe very little of it, little of it actually had to do with the crime at all. When they say evidence, you also wonder, does, does that just mean we found all this stuff and we have to, we have to go through it piece by piece and try to determine if it, if it means anything or not. And you know, that area too, that they were found is technically the property of somebody who lives farther towards like, it's like the back end of somebody's property is where they were found, right? Ron Logan. Yes. Thank you. Which is interesting in itself because they are approached. We know they are approached on, on these scenic trails on these, uh, you know, public land, let's say, and then later found on this private land. But yeah, it, they, they butt up to one another, but I've, I found that interesting too. And that's a question that comes up often too. People go, well, why didn't they scream? And I, I mean, I look at the location of where they were found eventually and where they were abducted. And I go, well, they, they may have, and they just, nobody heard them or the screams were so far off in the distance that the people that heard them didn't know they were hearing screams. Right. If, if you want to go like soup, super down into it, down into the, the weeds with me real quick on what, what I think happened here. I think the pro uh, a big problem with this case is that whatever he planned on doing, it didn't, it didn't work out. It's that's not what took place. I think he was able to take control and have control for a certain amount of time. And going back to the theory of why take them across the water when there was so much other dry land that you could traverse mm -hmm. with, with your victims as you are directing them where to go. Part of the whole thing about blood on his person, did he plan for that? I think he did plan for that, but I think his plan for that was that he was going to be leaving the area in a location where he didn't think he was going to be seen. So that might have just been good enough for him to not have to to put other things into play there to, to avoid that being spotted, covered in blood. One thing that's weird is we have statements from local law enforcement that said that they did a cell, they subpoenaed cell phone records within a five mile radius of that day within the time of question. So anyone whose cell phone pinged in that location was contacted and questioned by police. That's their words, contacted and questioned by police. I have to believe that that involves a face-to-face -face conversation where you can see this guy, especially where you think that you can see him or make out his features 
from from the video that we have of him on the bridge. So that brings a whole nother thing into play here where, and, and they stated that they looked particularly hard at anyone who was new in the area or who was in the area of the bridge for several hours on that day. Mm-hmm. So they did what I call like a data dump. And I've heard of this type of investigation tactic in other investigations I also know that it, it it is rather difficult to to pull this off, this you know what they call a data dump. But it seems like they did either successfully or attempted to. So if if they were successful with it, you have to take it a step further and go. Well, does that mean he was he was organized enough and sophisticated enough to not bring his cell phone with him? during his time at the Monon High Bridge that day. Yeah, I think I'm leaning more towards that he did not have a cell phone on him. Yeah. That's that's definitely seems right. Either he's a dinosaur and just doesn't own one or he made a he made an a conscious effort to not bring it with him. They've also said that they don't know for certain if he took a vehicle, you know, if he drove a vehicle there and left one there and fled in a vehicle or if he walked to this area, I find it interesting. I personally think that he drove to the area, but then that creates a whole different set of problems for the perpetrator of going undetected. But if he did drive to the area with this data dump investigation, it makes me believe he didn't even leave his, his phone in his vehicle that it was just, not a part of the plan at all. It was purposely left out. And that's where, you know, I go back into the weeds and I say, I think he was trying to direct them to a vehicle. Oh, I I don't think 100%. I agree. Yeah. I don't think that he was, I don't think that it went down the way that he wanted it to go down. And that is a, a big uh, kudos and thank you to the, to Abby and Libby. They were, you know, we, we have people on record saying that Libby was a hero because she filmed the bridge guy. We also have Mike Patty on record saying that, you know, Abby was a hero as well because the two, neither one of them left each other. They, they wouldn't have left each other. They were best friends till the end. And then I take it a step further and say, they're both heroes because they fought back. They Whatever this guy wanted to happen, it didn't go down the way that he wanted it to. That has led to evidence against him that we will be able to use against him someday. So let's talk about the connection between serial killers and signatures. So mm-hmm. we know that law enforcement use terms like MO and signatures to determine how someone commits a crime and why they commit a crime or what their you know thought process is. So the signature, for law enforcement to state that there are signatures available, it most likely points to the fact that they believe this person has offended before or will offend again. There's If it were a one-time crime, there would be no need to even mention the signatures that were there. Right. Cause the signature is mostly wrapped up in the fantasy of committing this crime. So they've thought about, they fantasized about committing this type of crime before 
and likely still fantasize about committing this type of crime again. And the signature is required by the fantasy and not necessarily required by the commission of the crime itself. Right. And if it did not go his way, it's very possible that the two girls were killed out of rage because they did not follow his commands. And he Mm -hmm. ended up still performing some type of signature that could eventually be connected to his other crimes or future crimes. So I, I think that's very telling by them stating there are signatures that they've noticed in the crime. And I, I too, I had written down as well, they use the term red flags as well. Hmm. So I, I just really, in my gut, and I've, I've actually consulted a couple different professionals in the field, and I asked them, why would law enforcement state that there are signatures in a crime if they think it's a one-time offender? And the answer is they don't. They do not think it's a one-time offender. So, Makes you know, sense. take take everything with a grain of salt. But I think they're, by saying just this little statement, they're saying a whole lot with it. There are some suspects that are known to the public. And even their the Wikipedia page has four or five listed there. Do you like any of their, those suspects? We don't need to go through each one. But are there any of those suspects that you like? And if so, why? And if if you don't like any of them, what are your thoughts or suspicions on who this guy could be? Just um, looking at the crime itself, I've always thought it's some type of a truck driver, some type of a delivery driver, something like that, to where there could have been a vehicle stashed somewhere and it would have not, it would not have raised red flags in the area. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, if that were the ultimate goal to get the girls there, that would make sense because that's his domain. That's his area. That's his property. So that being said, fairly recently, I want to say close to the beginning of the year, there was actually, I'm on, I'm on a couple of the, um, I'm on a couple of the Facebook groups about the Delphi case just to watch to see what people are saying. Most things okay. I don't take completely seriously, um, just because, again, too, it's all speculation. You know, all of this is speculation. But as of late, there was actually a man who came onto the group claiming he believes that his brother committed the crime. I believe this person is already in prison. So currently he's overweight about the same height, somewhere in the same range as what they had originally said. Um, At the time, he would have been much thinner. And another thing, too, we forgot to mention is about the gait of the person on the bridge. So I've seen a lot of arguments as far as whether or not this person is walking very particularly because it's unstable, or is it because they have some sort of a limp? This specific Hmm. person is from the area was a truck driver and has a limp. He had had knee surgery or something like that. So at the time, he would have been about the same size as the suspect's dimensions. So very lightweight on the shorter side. So I had actually ended up messaging the brother of this person just to find out whether or not he is, he's communicated with law enforcement. And he did message me back and state that he has um, communicated with them and the Delphi police are aware 
as well as the FBI. So as of right this moment, that is what my gut is telling me, um, that he looks really good for it. Why isn't this, why isn't this thing solved yet? Why do you, is there any one thing that you think you can hone in on and point out that you think that, Hey, this is what they need, or this is why they can't find this guy? Well, I think one of the main reasons is time has become the enemy in the case. Hmm. If, and you know, we can always say if, right? If this happened, then we would have him. If this happened, I really believe though, and I think we talked about this in the Amy Mahalovic case as well. Why sit on evidence for that long that could potentially identify somebody? And we know with Amy's case, they did not know it was even connected, right? Mm-hmm. With this case though, they knew that was a video and they did not release any of it. They they sent out a still frame of a person and then they sent out a sketch that was later changed. And I, I mean, I think, unfortunately, I don't know if it was a strategy of law enforcement to not let the individual know how much they had at first. Um, but I mean, like, my God, the, the man is captured on tape. His voice is captured on tape. There's a video of him available. Like, what, what else is it going to take to be able to find this person? I mean, I really do think that whoever did commit this, somebody knows it was them. Whether it's a family member, close friend, they know, but they just have not spoken up. And I mean, with that amount of evidence, it would be very difficult to not identify. But at the same time, I do think if this information would have been released previously, I have a feeling it would have been solved by now. One thing that has taken over my mindscape in the past few days, more so than the statement of there were at least two or three signatures or at least X amount of things that were odd about the crime scene is I've heard several of the investigators that are at the very center of this investigation say the same thing. And this is in regards to them talking about the crime scene and potential evidence as well stating that we all thought this would be solved very quickly. We all thought it would just be a day, maybe a couple of days. It makes me wonder what happened that's, that prevented that from being the case. These are seasoned investigators. These are This is not their first rodeo, and they're all sharing that same opinion from different agencies. What changed in the investigation that prevented that from happening or you wonder, do they, did they think that they had something that they did not? Did they think that they had something of evidentiary value that turned out to not be of any value at all? Mm-hmm. Like they focused too much on one or two things that they should have been looking at the bigger grand scheme. No, not that they mishandled it mm-hmm. or went about it the wrong way. Just they, they thought they had something that, that it didn't turn out to be what it appeared to be on the surface at the crime scene or uh, in relation to the case. Yeah. Hmm. But to have different individuals from different agencies all say that same statement. And then later we have Doug Carter saying, well, we think we were onto something early on in our investigation and that he has that statement right around the time where they're changing directions. They're taking the investigation in a new direction. Mm -hmm. You know, when we get the new sketch, I think the reason why this thing might not be solved, I think bridge guy has a helper 
Hmm. And I don't, that doesn't necessarily, there's, I think there's something helping him and it's working against the investigation. I think there's an added step. There's something extra that law enforcement are up against here that they may not even be aware that they're up against. And what I mean by that is a helper. To, I don't even know that it has to be a person. It could be some form of technology. It could be a person. It, and again, the the person themselves doesn't necessarily have to be a full on 100% accomplice. It could be somebody that just aided in some manner to this individual and may not even know that they've helped bridge guy. Mm-hmm. Right. And what, what any of this could be, could be, it could be a false alibi. You could get that with some kind of technology or a person. Maybe the person does know what you've done, but you have a false alibi that, that looks and it passes the smell test to investigators to where you are not on a certain list now because you have this alibi, but, but in fact, it's not a truthful one at all. You could also come up with a false alibi based off of technology. And I, and I don't know exactly how or what, I don't have an idea of what that would be, but if you had somebody, I think the problem is a lot of people point out to you, well, you want somebody that had a type of job or lifestyle that means that they did not have to be accounted for during that time, because they've always told us in their general profile that this person may have missed an appointment or had an unexcused absence from something during or around the time of the murders. Mm-hmm. So if they, if they didn't, if that has not worked on, on apprehending this individual, then you go, well, maybe this person did not have to be accounted for that day at that time. And that was my belief for a long time. I'm starting to wonder if, if this individual, maybe they spoke to them or spoke to the helper and there's something telling them that this person could not have been in the area at the time, but they in fact very well could have. Well, and it's interesting too, um, at that, at the announcement they had last year in April, um, do you remember the comment they, they made to the perpetrator who may very well be in this room and they stopped talking mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. has stuck out to me too. And I think it stuck out to a lot of people and a lot of people noticed both of them looked in a very specific area of the room. Did you notice that? Yeah, I noticed that. I I thought that um, one the rumor I heard in regards to that was that there was somebody in the room that has not been fully cooperative with their investigation. Mm. And they might be suspicious of the individual because of that. But I've also heard from the press that was present there that day that they had a different feeling and a different sense. Yes. They were all kind of in shock when they heard that statement at first and thought, well, the killer could be in the room, but I got the feeling that none of the, the press that, that spoke about their experience that day left there thinking that, that police believed that the guy was actually in the room. Mm -hmm. I do think that they purposely, because remember they announced I think they made the announcement on Thursday or Friday that they were going to have an announcement in the case on that Monday, Mm -hmm. on the following Monday. So I think they purposely did that with the intention of giving the bridge guy enough time to get there. Should he want to attend that press conference? Right. 
And what was interesting to me too, is the murders took place on a Monday. Maybe they're just going off of something as simple as, well, he was available on that Monday. Is there a chance that he's still available on Mondays? Hmm. Let's make the press conference on a Monday. That's an interesting thought. That's a really interesting thought. I really can't shake. And I know it seems so stupid and dumb and out of bounds right now, but I cannot shake the fact that I'm, I'm really starting to think he had some kind of helper Mm -hmm. in some way. And I I mean, is that somebody that's providing a false alibi? Is it somebody that dropped him off in that area? Right. Is there's, is it somebody that, that was not there for the abduction or the killings themselves, but was going to be a part of something later. And then that's where I go back to. Maybe that's why he passed on the potential of one victim and went, went after I was two. just going to say that. Oh my gosh. That's why. I mean, that's a really, that could explain the two victim choice. And there's a good chance that law enforcement knows this and you go, well, why would they hold that back? Are they trying to appeal to one of one of the perpetrators, right? To turn on the other one because under that scenario, you may have two people, and and my belief is if it was if he did have a helper, that the bridge guy is much more guilty of much more horrible crimes than what the helper would be mm-hmm. guilty of, and you wonder does Doug Carter come out with that statement that I believe that you still have just an ounce left of, I I can't remember his exact words, but he's, he's trying to play to somebody that might have some form of remorse or some form Mm -hmm. of guilt of their involvement in this and get them to come forward give them the chance to come forward. Yeah. That helper theory is really, that's really interesting. Melissa, thank you for coming on today. I really appreciate it. It was fascinating discussion and hopefully We will be talking very soon when this case is solved or going to try. I sure hope so. Thanks for having me on. Whatever struggles you are facing from depression and anxiety to trauma and grief, BetterHelp can connect you with a professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient. You can schedule a secure video or phone session, as well as chat and text with your therapist. And anything that you share is completely confidential. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Our listeners even get 10% off your first month with discount code GARAGE. So why not get started? Simply go to betterhelp.com garage and fill out a questionnaire to get matched with a counselor you'll love today. That's betterhelp.com garage. Since the recording of this discussion with Melissa Lee, Tobe Lesenby, who is the Carroll County Sheriff, told the Carroll County Comet that they have DNA and a partial fingerprint of the suspect that they are seeking in the double homicides of the Delphi murders. If anyone has information, you can reach the tip line at 844-459-5786. Until next week, be good, be kind, and don't litter.
Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.